Hi, I'm your host, Dave Kemp, and this is Future Ear Radio. Each episode, we're breaking down one new thing, one cool new finding that's happening in the world of hearables, the world of voice technology. How are these worlds starting to intersect? How are these worlds starting to collide? What cool things are going to come from this intersection of technology? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. All right, so we are joined here today by my buddy Andrew Bellavia. Andy is a reoccurring guest on the show, and we have a special guest today, Nikolai Havid. He is the CEO of Braggy. Um, this is a you know kind of a special episode because you know in light of everything that's happening, I know that most people have just one thing on their mind, and it is the pandemic. It's COVID nineteen, and I thought Nikolai would be an awesome guest to bring on to share the story of Braggy, um, you know, one of the pioneers in the wearable space, and really let him tell this story and expand on how this type of technology can be used sort of in the fight against COVID-19. So in, in any other future pandemics and, and really just to save lives. Um, so Nikolai, why don't you just kind of go back to the beginning and share with us the whole motivation and, and how Braggy sort of came about? Well, thank you very much. Um, pleasure to be on the show. I have now been working with Barry for almost eight years. Um, it's been a roller coaster ride. Um, anyone that makes a startup can most probably say the same thing. Um, when I started out, it was because of a personal motivation. I, I used to be in, a partner in, in Europe's largest design consultancy. We were working on how cars buying cars would turn into gaining access to mobility, how the power networks were changing, how uh, metros would change in the way and the nature of, of, of their service, and also how products would change. So one mythology we would be using is seeing trajectories. Um, one is in terms of technology, another one is in terms of user interface, and the last one is in terms of financial interactions. So, this was a way of how to project what would be coming in those spaces. And we called it business design. That's a discipline that was, was built about 12, 13 years ago. And a problem came to me. My sister at the time had had multiple sclerosis for about 20 years and um, was confined to a wheelchair. And this is obviously a very personal story, so um, bear with me. Um, so she got it when she was 21 and the horrible thing about multiple sclerosis is that it attacks the nerve system and slowly um, breaks you down. Uh, so you lose your mobility, you lose your loss of, of your arms, of your voice, of your control of your eyes, of your head, uh, and it's a horrible, horrible sickness. Um, so. I wanted to do something that was helping my sister. I was wanted to use the design methods, like the business design, to see how can I support my sister. And I was entering a conversation with her, took a long time. So she said, you shouldn't be focusing so much on, on me as a disabled person. Focus on, on all of us and see with your means and capabilities how you can make something that helps all of us. 
um, you see, being disabled for, 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 for my sister was that she couldn't walk, she couldn't talk, but there's many plenty of things I couldn't do either. Um, it's all different like for you and for, for, for Andrew. There's certain things we're good at. Maybe Andrew's a great singer, I'm not. Um, so there's certainly things that I would like to, to be supported in, in gaining access to or, become, like, or, or being able to do. So look at my sister, she couldn't turn on the lights, she couldn't turn on the TV, she couldn't um, put on clothes, she couldn't go to the bathroom, she couldn't do anything by herself. Um, today we see the voice agents like Alexa that help you if you were able to speak to do many of these things. But back eight years ago, this didn't exist. So when I used my business design um, heritage, um, one thing that became obvious was that computers were going to be small and become smaller and smaller and you consume less and less power. Um, same thing is in terms of user experience. Um, when you interacted with a computer in the 80s, you were pressing buttons on a keyboard. Then you gained access to a mouse, then you were able to touch a screen, then sensors were embedded into the products we use that you can turn your phone into portrait mode and would switch with you. Now the phone can detect when you're in a car, it can detect when you're falling over, and it can detect a whole bunch of things, but only because it has a range of sensors inside. So what you want is sensing computers, and by a very simple extrapolation, you can see that these computers can become very, very small. Uh, MIT calls computer dust. This is quite well known even back then that within a range of about 15 years, we potentially could have millions of computers on our body with sensors on them. So technically you are capable of doing that, but what are you going to use it for? So I wanted to make the smallest possible system, not having millions of computers on the body, but having two. So two computers with sensors that would collaborate to enable and support and protect themselves. And if I wanted to have two computers, I needed to place them in a, in a spot that had high value from a user experience point of view. Um, that was a thesis. I wanted two sensor-enabled devices that would be collaborating discreetly to support me in, in what I do. So if I want to be discrete interaction, um, I didn't know this is very geeky, but a visual interface like your laptop is a high information density serial interface while an audible interface is what we call a parallel interface. You can sit and listen to what I'm saying, find it boring or interesting, but you can also do many other things at the same time. You can, your brain is made to parallel, pro, uh, parallel process the data, even if you're doing something else at the same time. So for a discrete body computer, the ear was a great place to be. Also because it's a place where you can sense many other things, anything from from uh, biometric data to uh, brain activity to uh, motion. It was a great place just to figure out what the person was doing. We call that contextual data. So I went out to some of the companies that I've been working with before and said, I want to do this contextual um, discrete computer in the ear. And uh, we're going to use it to um, enable people to do more. And the feedback from semiconductor companies and from, from hardware companies 
was that's ridiculous. Like, first of all, why would anyone need that? That's like, why would you want to lose a cable? That makes no sense. So the invention was not to make true wireless stereo, it was actually to make two computers that were in a body that would be collaborating. So why would you make that without a cable? It's much cheaper to make it without a cable, and who's going to use that? And we've never seen a demand for these type of computers. Um, and even if you could build it, no one would, no one would run it. Um, so my focus was really on software and AI. So when you needed software to make these computers collaborate, and you needed AI to process the sensor data into and making sense of that. Um, but since no one wanted to make it, I said, well, um, F it, I'm going to make it myself. Um, not knowing at all what I was venturing into, at all. Um, I thought I knew a lot because I've been building hundreds of headphones with, with uh, other companies. I've been building a lot of products in my time. Uh, so I thought I knew a lot, but making something tiny and in an ear and no, I, I, I thought I knew, but I didn't. So I went out to a range of companies that would support this, this route. And one of them is where I met Andrew. Um, so that's a long, long uh, relationship there. Very good one. Uh, very much appreciate all the help that we've gotten through time. As do I. It was, it's been a lot of fun. So um, I said, I'm going to let people show if they like this concept or not. So we made a uh, movie for, for Kickstarter, you know, with helicopters and people swimming and uh, biking and uh, showing what, what this product could do. We, we also had a prototype um, for it. Um, and it went online on a Sunday. Um, in February 2014, I think. And within the first week, we had a million dollars for Kickstarter. Uh, after 60 days, uh, and I was just in my basement, right? After 60 days, there was $3.4 million in support, about 16,000 people that supported the course. And I was completely mind blown. Like these were people that were spending 170 to 220 dollars to someone that they didn't know, they had no idea if they could make it, but wanted to support that idea with their money. And it just created a landslide in the industry. Like people were looking at this thing and thinking, hey, first of all, he's not going to make it. But if he is, well, this might well, be something. And I think the thing to consider is how early in Kickstarter days that was. So you were really one of the first ones to raise that kind of money on that platform. When you think about Kickstarter today, even established companies are using it as a medium to gain exposure. But back then, to raise millions of dollars on Kickstarter was really something. It, uh, it was quite remarkable. And you know, it was, uh, it was like 12, 12 people and I was sitting in my basement at home and we were like, like 18, 19 hours a day sitting, responding to, to Kickstarter backers. I, rem I remember that. That, that. I remember when you launched on Kickstarter, that was a really visceral moment for me because that's when I was like, okay, this is getting really interesting. Now you have wearables moving up to the ear. And I thought, 
okay, now what would that mean if you have the same type of notion, a body-worn computer, but you're putting in it in an entirely new environment, biometric side, having a voice assistant communicate with you. There was just so many different options that were different from the wrist. Yeah, no, and also one of the basic principles was that this was predominantly a software-defined product rather than a hardware-defined product, which we're still pushing, by the way, eight years later. Um, so if you take an iPhone or an Android phone, that's predominantly a software-defined product. Uh, like if you had a Nokia back in the days, you, you downloaded, uh, you didn't even download anything, you had, you had Snake on it and you could play that. Um, but our ambition is and was that, that a consumer can define their product by utilizing infrastructure inside a headphone. So whether that's motion sensors, biometric sensors, that someone can write an application for that product that is suiting me um, rather than I have to buy a sports headphone. So maybe I want to have encrypted communication and do sports, but I would never be able to find a product doing that. Maybe I want to do a, a 3D gaming uh, with, with head movement tracking, and I, am, uh, and I like um, paragliding. So how I'm going to find someone who makes a paragliding headphone that also does 3D gaming, it's, it's not possible. Um, but if you look at the phones, you can have a paragliding app and you can have a game app. Um, so that was really the objective. And, and throughout the time making the product, we always created a software infrastructure that made it possible to, to add applications which is really hard for embedded devices. I think Andrew can, can chip in there. It's, it's not an easy task uh, because we're using something that has a couple of hundred, hundreds of, of kilobytes. So pretty much what any kind of microwave has today. Um, and we're running applications and programs in there. Yeah, no, it's really quite a challenge given the processor power available in the day to have a, you know, a, a really robust app ecosystem. The code had to be very tight and very efficient. Uh, and it still does, although with modern processors, you have a lot more latitude and a lot more capability for edge processing of sophisticated, uh, you know, sophisticated different use cases. Like we were thinking about the COVID case, for example, you could analyze the voice, you could analyze coughing, you could analyze temperature and start to build a profile of a person who's becoming ill with influenza or COVID, for example, all running on the edge. And, and you know, that's the sort of thing I could see your ecosystem really, you know, tackling in the future. You know, I think it's, it's like what you said, I could have a wellness app that's monitoring my basic wellness, but when I go for a run, I'm gonna load up the running app instead and I'm going to run my workout based on the bio data and the feedback I'm getting in my ear. That's a really compelling uh, set of use cases for in-ear devices. So we went to Kickstarter. We had to build these devices, these headphones uh, called the Dash. And we thought we had to build like maybe like 500 or 1,000 tops, right? And there's a big difference between building 500 and building 200,000. If you're building 200,000, you need to, to worry about yield. Like, and if you have a complicated system, you can lose product in any kind of situation in terms of, of yield loss. So yield loss means if a microphone doesn't work to specification or if the 
um, wireless interface does not match your specification, then the product is not allowed to be shipped to a consumer. Um, so we thought, you know, we need to like hand assemble like 500 pieces over five months, and we could do that in a lab. That would be fine. Like we can get some some people to sit down, hand build these things, test it by hand, see okay, this works. Um, so we never actually intended to build a hardware. We wanted to build a data acquisition platform where we could see what are the use cases that people like, how do people want to use this, what do people not want to have. And um, that was just not the case. We we had to we had to actually had to build a, a company making headphones. And we all we wanted was to sell the software and AI to to brands that were making headphones already. So um, we started building this, and it was really really damn hard. Um, building things is not not easy, and um, building a prototype is quite easy, but. But then you, you can spend 10 times as much time and then you might have something that can be mass produced. It's a very big difference. And so even though we had been through it before, it was a nightmare of gigantic dimensions. Um, inside a dash um, went about 400 components. So all four of the components needed to work, needed to work, to work together, needed to be put in the right place, needed to work as a system, not just by itself, and it was horrible. Um, so when we, do, when we did the dash, there was a small lens that was sitting on the inside, and this lens had to be made from a special material to ensure that there was no reflections. So this lens is picking up when it's going inside the ear, as well as the heart rate and uh, the oxygen saturation was intent. So we were prototyping a lot of different materials and we found a material that had the right kind of reflection and optical characteristics that we could use. And this was a special material from a Japanese company. It's just a, a fun story about production hell. So when you ship material, you can either do that by plane or by, 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 uh, by boat, by, by container ship. But in order to build 100,000 headphones, we needed about 40 pounds, 20 kilograms of this material, nothing. It was very expensive. But because it was a prototype material, it was not allowed to go on a plane. It was not qualified to go on a plane. So when we ordered it, we would have to put it on a ship and wait for eight weeks to get it. So we were contemplating getting like a racing boat to go over, hiring a private jet to get this material. Um, like. We did all kinds of, of, of thinking and we ended up bringing it from Japan to Korea and then from Korea to China and then with a train by hand down to the, the factory. It was, it was crazy. Um, and, um, and we ended up uh, building these products and throughout the lifetime of this product, we started adding features, adding capabilities, adding applications. And it was quite interesting to see how these were used. So we had a theory that people were not buying a feature price for one specific thing, but, be, but they were buying something that they liked about the product and they had to buy multiple products to satisfy their needs. So when we got usage data back from these devices, we saw that very geeky, special things were liked by some group of people, but disliked by someone else. Like someone loved it, like a five-star review, 
and someone else hated it. But it was not, um, like data analysis didn't tell us that this combination would be great, it was completely random. So when you got all the features lined up, maybe 30, 40 features, it was actually quite, um, like all of them quite evenly used, but in a complete interesting mismatch. So our thesis that people would like to download apps to do exactly what they wanted, but leave others about, was completely supported by that, that action. So this was really a first step about making body-worn computers that would be collaborating. And soon everyone else started picking up, but they only really made the headphone part of it, not the computer and sensing part. Um, so that, that's where really where, where, where that journey took off. We decided to sell off the hardware business about a year ago, and it was very much the right choice because we need to focus back on the software and the, and the AI. And um, now in a few months, we have customers launching products based upon our software. So we're much more like an Android for headphones than in, in, in really, really small than, um, than a headphone maker anymore. So do you sort of view that first period of Bragi as being almost like a proof of concept where you were, you're now kind of able to go because, you know, in listening to some of your past interviews, it sounds like the real brainchild is the Bragi OS. And, yes. and this gave you the opportunity to say, here's what it would look like. We don't really have the desire to go and be a full turnkey hardware solution as well, but we have the engine that can run in one of these devices. We, and we take it as the approach of this is an actual computer in your ear. It's, you know, it takes it beyond, I think what maybe was that preconceived notion of sort of a, a slightly more intelligent headphone to a full blown computer in your ear. Well, there was many technical limitations of things we couldn't do simply because the compute power was very low. So the, the, the semiconductors, the chips that are coming out end of this year have maybe, like in terms of computing this kind of data, maybe like a 80 to 120 times more processing power than what we were coping with back eight, seven, eight years ago. Um, so it certainly has a lot more compute power in terms of, of executing and, and running AI. Um, and I mean AI for, for evaluating sensor data, uh, which is, is, is brilliant because that, that supports what we're doing. Um, and also looking at how we can continue doing this. So our journey has come from, from building things, understanding how to test them, how to actually build them, what is the problem while building them. If we just took the, the approach of making software, I think we would never have made a product in our lives because we would have stopped right at the production case, like we would not have known what to do. So we, uh, we are at a point now, and now we are applying our software into headphones, into microwaves, uh, air conditioners, and this becomes an interesting network of, of ambient computing. So you have devices that will be able to collaborate to support you discreetly. Um, I don't believe much in like seven cameras inside a fridge that will automatically figure out what's, what's missing in there. But I definitely think that a fridge should know if there's an overflow of water or if you have fallen over or if a window breaks. Um, if there's someone in the room that is usually not there. 
Um, I also think that when you buy a, a microwave after you bought a fridge, why would you need to do anything to set them up? Like, why would you need to download an app on your phone where you need to pair them and make sure that they are working together? Like, it, it takes an engineering degree to make any of this smart home stuff work. So when we look beyond hearables, it's really about getting the computers that are around us to work together. Um, like this tiny software and AI package that can run on the cheapest of computers around us. And it becomes very complex what these things do or what they should be doing. But think of it in a different way. Humans have senses and the more senses we apply, the better picture we get of what is happening around us. If we only could see it like a camera does, we would lose a lot of context. We wouldn't know what people are saying. We wouldn't know what they're wanting to do. We only have the point of view of what the camera actually shows. So if we combine our, our, all our senses, we get a much better picture. The same thing is about computers. If you have multiple computers that have a lot of sensors, you can combine the, that information to get a better picture of what is really happening to you. So the smart speakers, speakers you see today is really like a first step at, at this ambient computing. They have very limited sensors. They have very limited knowledge. But there's certain things you can do. If we just take the example of a smart speaker, you can start adding uh, a millimeter wave radars. They can actually sense your heart rate. They can see if you have a irregularity of the heart rate. You can also have infrared cameras. They can see, or just cameras, they can see it's not about making a picture of you, but they can see if you have increased temperature. So even without having the computer on you, it would be able to notice if there's differences in your behavior, differences in the way that you, you act. And maybe this is something that could predict when you have an epileptic seizure, or if you have a fever, or getting a flu. Even, even with these computers around you, they're not designed to do that, but by combining the sensor input, you can start finding these patterns. Yeah, I mean, I think that this that idea that you said really resonates with this idea that you're giving computers more senses. I think that's a really visceral example because I think that to your point, you know, if you're just using microphones or you're just using cameras um, in, you know, just individually, that's it's not really fully capable. But when you can combine these things, then you kind of have this mesh network of, of senses. And, and can you speak a little bit about how Braggy fits into this? So if you, you know, is it the mesh that will wire this all together and sort of be the engine that drives this? Um, can you just sort of paint the picture of how you envision this network, if you will, of sensors and how Braggy is, is the Braggy engine in each one of these different sensors or are the sensors feeding into sort of the, the mothership sensor? So the, our lead scientist on our AI team, he wrote a PhD about uh, fly brains, like zzz brains. And he did a, a computer model of the nerve system uh, and the brain of a, of a banana fly. And when you're looking at insects, you can get inspired for many things about how computers should be working. Insects are amazing. So, the first step we got by looking at how banana flies process data and we could make AI much smaller. But if you're looking at ants, ants 
and working together in, in tens of thousands collaboratively to do a certain task. And that is based upon their own sensing, their sensing in a group, and then a common language of how they can collaborate. So that we're trying to do the same thing. So we're trying to make like a ant software and AI brains. Um, and we're far, far away from that. Um, but I think even smaller, I think you're on a small journey of sensing and, and sensing processing and communication. So the sensing is not really our job. There's, there's a lot of co companies out there that make amazing sensors. In chemistry class, you could measure the pH value of a, a fluid by putting a strip inside the fluid and you see the, 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 uh, the, um, the color changing. Now, there's many other sensors. There's a sensor inside your phone that's called a motion sensor. So that senses accelerations and rotations. And the phone uses that to identify whether you have a landscape or, or portrait mode and many other things too. But these sensors are actually quite big. They're like two by three millimeters, these electronic sensors. So miniaturizing that is, is difficult with, with that kind of technology. What is incredibly interesting is the deployment of biochemical sensors. So rather than having electronic sensors, you can take the, what is similar to the pH measurement strip and miniaturize that for different agents. So you could have something that would be tiny with let's say 20 different strips. One of them could determine if you pee on it that uh, if you have prostate cancer, if you have, if you're lacking some vitamins, if you are sick in some way. And this is just one thing that is amping computing. And we're talking about a small, tiny, tiny computer that you barely can see inside the, the bathroom, right? So these biochemical sensors, it is very probable that you can have thousands of agents in a space that you barely can see. And if you start thinking about it, you can have something that's like a grain of a salt, where, where there's compute, wireless communication, and thousands of sensors embedded. It becomes very probable that you can have those all across your clothing, in your shampoo, on everything that you wear that, that starts creating a sense of what is happening. Now, this sounds like a crazy, far-fetched um, future technology, but this is actually things that are being done right now. So there's different research institutes that makes these tiny computers that you barely can see. Um, the biochemical sensors are already being made in the labs. So maybe in the next 10 to 20 years, it is very feasible that these small uh, biochemical sensors with brains that they can be deployed in pretty much anything that we have around us. And, um, and they'll interact more in a mesh network like the ant colony example. So there isn't exactly. necessarily all these sensors feeding a central location for decision making, but they're more or less sharing data along the mesh and interacting accordingly and only going outside the mesh when things need to be done outside the mesh. Is that correct? That is correct. And they're also very cheap. Like they can be replaced for almost no costs. So this can be going into your suntan lotion to, to identify when you have a burn or if you have, uh, if the water is not good for you, if there's some, some biochemical agents in the water. Um, 
uh, you could have clothing that could change color when you are working as a as an oil and gas worker. If there's a, as a, a gasket, um, there would be be, uh, be sensors that could take care of, of minor minors or now very actual in terms of COVID nineteen, uh, seeing if there is. Um, if there's agents in the air that are not healthy for the, the, the caretakers. Um, now, this, not, might not, this will not happen next year. It might happen in the next 10 to 20 years. And, and all these computers will be like computer dust and they will be non-visible. They will be working around us and they will be predominantly trying to take care of us that we can grow older, avoid disabilities, avoid diseases, um, prevent accidents, uh, but also enable us to do things we couldn't do before. So um, train us up. Um, I'm, I'm mid forties and, and overweight. Um, so maybe it could identify what food is good for me and what is bad for me. It could tell me what to stop. I could have these computers uh, in my, my stomach. I could have it. Um, when I pee on it in my clothing, and it's all about enabling and protecting myself. And presumably, there, you know, on, on the way to this vision, which is 10 or 20 years from now, you'll have a more discrete version of that. So I might have smart shoes measuring my gait, and I might have smart hearable devices with biosensing and, you know, doing voice biometrics. Is that your vision that in the intermediate stages, you'll have a more discrete version of the mesh network, accomplishing real things, making people's lives better on the way to the more ubiquitous, uh, you know, microbiosensors? Is that the vision? Yeah, I, th I think we should think about wearables in the same state where computers were in the 70s, right? You could fill up a full room with a, with a computer that could do very basic tasks. So it would be huge. And that has progressed to something that is millions of times faster and can reside in our pocket and we have access to everything in the, in the world. And this really happened within 40 years, 30, 40 years. So if you're looking 20 years ahead, these tiny computers might be as fast as many of the, the phones we had um, like 10 years ago, each one of them, but we'll have tens of thousands of, of them around us with each of them having thousands of different sensors. And they might deploy after time. They might not work for more than maybe a week or a month, but they are so inexpensive that you can redeploy them uh, over and over. And you will have them inside, you have them outside yourself. And it's much like, um, like no, one, no one is hurt by, by eating a grain of, of sand. And it's very much the same thing. So do you think, I agree with you. I think that the trajectory is that, you know, these things get smaller to the point to where they are the grain of a sand. And at the same time, they're still sort of actually increasing in the capacity that they can support from a computational standpoint. So in today's terms, um, the way that we, you know, given the current landscape, do you, do you think that there are combinations of uh, existing sensors of, of different mass market consumer wearables that can be used in some type of capacity to either be used as early diagnosis tools of something like a COVID-19, um, used as a way to um, maybe identify those that have, uh, you know, contact tracing, you know, so based on the, the GPS location of them. Um, have you given them much thought about, you know, kind of like the current landscape, 
and how maybe we could use some of these different things in conjunction today, knowing that they are still sort of primitive or at least in that more, you know, it's in the legacy stamp. It's not quite fully developed. There's actually quite a lot of things that we've done short term. Uh, one of the things is adding a high precision thermometer inside the email. Mm-hmm. So with, with an in-ear headphone, you can measure the temperature in the email. So you can identify when someone has uh, slightly higher temperature, either if it's fever or with uh, um, ovulation, so, so for birth control. Um, so it can be used for both things. Um, you can use the motion sensors inside a headphone to, uh, so this research tool that way it can predict epileptic seizures before you get them, which is very helpful because if you're driving a car, that's, that's not a nice scenario. Um, but there's also more advanced sensors where we have air quality and um, the impact of different uh, alcohol-based impacts like, like uh, solutions around us. And specifically for COVID-19, what I think, and I'm not a, a medical doctor, so I'm not a domain specialist, but what you're looking for is, um, is that you see in your body that you have uh, anti-viral uh, agents. Um, so there's a, there's a method called IgG, IgM, where you're looking for these um, antibacterial or antiviral uh, elements. Um, and there's doctors and, and pharmacists and, and other things that know this much better than I do. I think that would be hard to, to figure out right now because that really requires uh, saliva or blood and, and a process for it. But when there's a process for today, in the future, that's something that could be done automatically at some point. So with the right kind of time and effort, um, if you have a way of identifying something today, you can miniaturize and, and cost it down if necessary. Uh, history shows that that's the case. Yeah, no, I think that makes uh, a whole lot of sense. Yeah, and and by coincidence, earlier this morning, I read an article in the New York Times about a company called Kinza who has a thermometer, you know, discrete thermometer that's connected and people sign up to allow their temperature data to go to Kinza. And they can also input other symptoms and they get some basic advice, you know, whether you should go see a doctor or what have you. And it turns out that they had been using the temperature data to watch the spread of influenza and actually be several weeks ahead of the U.S. uh, Center for Disease Control, for example. And now they've repurposed their software to track COVID-19. And so they're actually seeing, you know, the the growth or decline in COVID-19 cases through their data of some hundreds of thousands of people submitting their temperature data whenever they use the thermometer. And it occurs to me that even in today's case, that's the kind of health monitoring uh, that you could build in a discrete sensor-based device like a hearable, in which you're measuring temperature and you're measuring heart rate and, and you know, voice, you know, voice biometrics and cough and so on. And you could start to make those through the onboard operating system, start to make basic health decisions without even being connected. You know, this is something you should probably contact a doctor about, or it's ignoring what seems to be routine. That sort of thing. So it's really, really intriguing how this sort of thing could, uh, in a mass market device, really provide enough data 
both for the individual and also on a global basis. So specifically for COVID-19, it's also about communication. It's not just about identifying sickness, it's also about coping with the pandemic around you. And many of us work from home. I, I don't, I, I'm not saying my office, but I'm more or less the only one here. So that's okay, so this is my, my retreat. Um, but if you have a predominantly software-defined product, you can quite rapidly write software and deploy it to adopt it to whatever new use cases come, use cases come around. If you have the old feature-based products like the headphones that are coming out, are happy coming out forever, you can't change them. They, they just stick to what they were. So coping with the next COVID-19, because they were coming, will be coming something else at some point. You might have hundreds of millions of devices in the field with sensors embedded where you can update the AI and the software for it to cope with that specific situation. Right. And you'll actually be way ahead of the kind of tracking to find hotspots that we have today. And you imagine with exactly what you described, you have a two or three week extra lead time. Imagine how much more quickly you would get on hotspots and isolate them without having this entire global disruption. You know, also, it's, it's kind of the prototype for that really, right? And the way they handled it. And now you imagine exactly what you described with a more sensor-based system that could get on top of it much quicker and allow people to react much quicker. And we're not talking about something expensive here. We're talking about like, tiny sensors that are already inside a headphone. Like you need to measure the, the battery temperature so a headphone very much has the capability of measuring temperature. It's just thinking about placing those thermistors, like the sensors, in the right spots and, and thinking about that, that system architecture before you deploy a product. Now, this was a lot of geeky stuff about um, AI and building things. And, and, and um, if you're up for it, we can do a bit of, of extrapolation into the future. So even a bit further, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, let's do it. I, I, I want to yeah. just keep going. <laughs> so going from something that we have done and, and are, are deploying right now, and this is not about marketing, this is just about what I think some, in terms of impact, right? Um, I have seen contact lenses that projected an image into your eye. And um, most probably by 2035 to 2040, those would be of a quality where it would be difficult to distinguish what is real and what is created around you. So keep that in mind, having something that's augments your vision where you can't really see the difference if it's real or not real. Then think about having, let's say, a million small computers on your body that can emit small electric signals into your nervous system and thereby simulate that you're grabbing something or you're touching something or that there's a wind breezing. So all these small computers could be capable of emitting a signal into the nerve. So we're not talking about some crazy ass thing that goes into your, your brain. We're just talking about really, really tiny computers that have sensors on them that is like an augmented nerve system and can emit signals into your own nerve system. Like the thing you have everywhere, right? 
So by 2040, let's say we even say it's by 2050, it is technically feasible that by using ambient computing and these contact lenses, that you can recreate an experience that you only would have by actually being there. So you would feel that you are surfing. You would feel that you have a breeze in your face. You would, you would think that everyone that is around you is real. But all of it is generated. And I'm, I'm not talking about matrix here. I'm not talking about some conspiracy thingy that I, I'm just talking about technology advances in a direct line, not, not something crazy that needs to happen to you. Yeah, right. It's just the ultimate evolution of the VR experience. Although I always tend to feel that mixed reality will be much more prominent than 100% VR, except for certain experiential things like I want to go walk down the street in Paris, for example. Yeah. But well, let's, let's think this is, this is not VR as it is today. It is just I can uh, jump in reality to Brazil with a snap of my fingers. I can be on the beach, I can see the beach, I can, I can feel the breeze, I can feel the heat on my body, or at least it's simulated, and I, I, I can believe I'm there. So in the past 150 years, the world has gone through an urbanization where people have been moving into cities, and we're living in very expensive small areas, um, mainly because we needed to aggregate enough knowledge to have these peak uh, knowledge uh, drivers, like a, a chip designer at Intel, or these very few people that can do something special, and then the support structures for them. Yeah. And, Are you and you need all them in a, in a big city. Sorry? A university, is, a university is another good example, right? Exactly, yeah. So you need enough people that, that can feed the university or feed the company with specialized um, people. Now, if you can create an alternate reality where you actually think you are working, like you, you believe you're actually inside the office of that space, you have full access to knowledge. You don't need to move together in big cities as we do today. You don't need to go to uh, Rome to see Rome. So today we have about a billion people that have the financial means to travel and to see. And we're seeing on the skies what happens when all those planes stop. But when you have the capability of feeling, sensing a workplace, a, an education place, a touristic target, and the interaction with other people, why would you ever need to go there? We can't all go there. Mm -hmm. So we reduce a lot of the natural resources that are being used to move a physical body from A to B. Yeah, so you're envisioning that that experience will be so real after a length of time, the experience will be so real that we won't feel that it's artificial and therefore we will have all the same emotional connection that goes with that experience as if we were really there. So maybe the tens of billions that we're using to subsidize and help the airlines Maybe those tens of billions should go into making the technology happen that doesn't require us to go anywhere. The same thing happens for, for real estate investment. So if I don't need to, need to go anywhere, we see this today, right? We're all working from home. 
and all this office space is gone. Traffic is way down. It's much better for the environment. We're not all, all going in the same direction in the morning, going in the same direction in the evening. Mm-hmm. We're not putting ourselves into to, to, uh, trains and sitting there and standing up. We are simply uh, putting ourselves in another space and working there. So all that real estate that is empty at night and all the houses that are full at night, empty, houses empty at day and buildings that are full at day, we don't have that anymore. We don't have this double um, space claim anymore. So the, the housing prices could go down quite rapidly and we don't even need to be in the big cities. I can live in somewhere in, in Minnesota and still have a high paid job in the valley. Mm-hmm. Just as we've seen today where everyone is working with, with uh, video conferencing and we actually seen that it works well, but this is just on a different level. Yeah. So yeah. rather investing in a legacy technology like planes, maybe we should consider investing in making sure that we don't have the pandemics by, by applying technology, not because it's technology, because it's interesting, but also applying technology where we can actually reduce the amount of, of natural resources we're using. Yeah, which is interesting because even, even now I've seen the maps of urban pollution levels, how they've gone way down because very few people are driving. And so ultimately your vision could be an answer for the climate change problem is that we're not consuming nearly as much energy because I need to be over there during the day and over here at night. Exactly. So we are reducing the need for transportation. We're reducing the need for, for infrastructure or doubling the infrastructure. Um, so it is not investing in technology, it's investing in a sustainable world. So it's not just about enabling and protecting people. And maybe this is far beyond my means and my lifetime in terms of, of, of making things. But I think that we'll come to a place where technology dramatically changes the way that we consume um, things around us. I mean, I think that if you, anything that you're saying, I don't think people can, can really cast any sort of doubt on it because you, if you were to travel back in time and pitch somebody on what we, how we interact today, um, you know, if you were to go back even to the 70s or the 80s even, and you said that there would be a point in time where however much percent of the workforce now is per- operating entirely remote, you know, we obviously were forced into this, but um, I think a lot of people would, would say there's no way. Like, how would you do that? Because they... In, unless you're sort of experiencing the gradualness of how that technology advances, it's not as if it just suddenly happens. And, you know, this idea where these types of sensors will have probably by this time been around for decades and they'll have continued to miniaturize and also become more sophisticated to the point to where they are like a haptic bodysuit that is simulating um, any type of environment that you want. And it's also simulating going back to the whole point around your senses, right? We're basically taking all of these things and we're applying the computer senses, augmenting them onto our own body so that we can simulate any type of environment that we really want, whether it be through any one of our senses. I think you're very right. And, and the most important thing about this is not to forget the entertainment part because that drives... Um, no, you're right. That drives our, our demand for things. Like how would, how do you envision this with a bar? 
I know that's something that a lot of people miss right now, but like, okay, so if none of us can go to the bar, we're doing a virtual happy hour. What's the evolution of that? Are we all sort of you, Andy and I were sitting around and we're all just drinking a beer, but it feels as if we're at the same table. That would be one way, but I think that there's something else driving it. That, that, that histo- so I love history and history shows what drives uh, technology adoption. And if you're looking at the, uh, at the adoption between Betamax and VHS, uh, or even DVDs, that there was one thing that drove that adoption. Um, not that all things are driven by that, but but quite a few things are. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. maybe the first use case won't be a bar. <laughs> right, right. But eventually, we're going to evolve in how we interact with each other yes. anyway. So you know, the the whole idea of congregating in a bar may become obsolete. And, and also thinking ahead, you're talking about contact lenses that can project a real experience and so on. And at some point in the future, and, and other people have talked about this already and even primitively started to approach it, uh, start you know generating these experiences within the brain directly and not needing to go through the eyes to create that experience within the brain. I think that's a very brave step and um... It goes beyond what I feel comfortable with. Well, we're 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 both at a state where you know we it's it's too far beyond our experience to imagine that's possible. But once we've done an external uh, sensor and interface package that creates an overwhelmingly real experience, we will then be ready for the next step. But and I, I also think that, that there's different cultural uh, impacts that might might hold us back and also be maybe a, like an ethical compass for us. Um, I am Danish. I'm, I'm living in Germany. If we're taking uh, European history and take just 100 years back, um, there's at least the first 20, 30 um, dictatorships uh, I can count easily, if not even 50 or 60, 70, that, that, that is in our history, right? So this kind of technology in the wrong hands is not a good thing. Um, well, no, that's a completely different issue altogether. And yes. so the second hour of this podcast will be the privacy <laughs> discussion. Yeah, I, th- I, think, uh, I think one step after the next. So I, I think that, that entrepreneurs do things because of passion and not because they want to, to control someone else. That, that might be something that's coming up afterwards when, when more and more money starts getting involved and you make like your... your your compass gets skewed by money. Um, obviously, money is important to drive any business, but but I, I made this business to help my sister, not not to to eavesdrop on someone else. Um, so I think, based in Germany and with the very strict um, privacy rules that are here, I think this is a perfect spot for privacy to be to ensure that our moral compass doesn't get skewed. Yeah, I agree, and 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 I think. Long before we get to realizing your vision, we will have had to have solved that privacy problem. We're not even going to get very much further along in the voice ecosystem and discrete uh, intelligent computing around us before you're going to get serious pushback and have to address the privacy issues. The, the minute, the minute your, uh, your voice assistant today becomes emotionally aware you're going to get that pushback and the need to to look at privacy in a much more robust way 
long before we get to the vision you're talking about. Well, Dave, you asked before, and I, 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 I jumped around the question whether everything is being done by you know the ants out there or is being sent back, and um, whether you call it endpoint AI or, or edge AI. I think the big principle of it is that most of the AI has to run without contacting home base. Only if something happens that is bad, home base has to be contacted. But all the detection otherwise is happening out there without much data going back. So um, what, would be the, what would be the sort of uh, trigger to communicate with, like is it, I've detected an anomaly, I've detected a threat. Um, so there, are they, is it your vision that these are sort of pre-programmed to say the only times that you would ever communicate with home base would be X, Y, and Z? Yeah, so there will be like a kind of if this, then that engine in there. So if the person falls over and screams, please contact home base. That makes sense. And this could be applied inside the application. So if this happens and this happens, please do this thing. Right. And we see that, we see that starting now. For example, people are starting to acoustically monitor industrial processes. So you've got an acoustic sensor listening to the bearings in some machine. And they don't say anything to anybody except once a day, hey, I'm still here, until the bearing starts making a noise that's indicating impending failure. Then it wakes up and calls some other ship and says, go check out machine number 12. Exactly. It's quite impressive. So we made a, a, a prototype where we could detect um, uh, the, when the ball bearings, the, the surface is being worn down, if there's, something, if there's a crack, if there's sand or something else, like, it's, like a, some, some other material that shouldn't be in there. And we could detect all of that based upon motion and sound. So the AI could detect, could be trained to de determine if one of these things were happening. And if it happened, then it should be feeding back saying, hey, there's something wrong with this ball bearing. So it's not just about humans, it's also about, about the things around us. Well, and one I interesting thing, as a, as a bit of a closer for this, in Europe, um, there's a lot of discussion about reducing waste, so making sure that white goods work for 10 or 20 years. And you can only do this with predictive maintenance. You can only do this with AI, with sensors, detecting when something goes wrong to, to prevent a, a full failure. So it's not just about uh, doing predictive maintenance on people, but also on things. No, actually, I think that's probably more realistic in the shorter term is machine to machine communication. And going back to your point, circling this thing back around, you know, going that if this, then that scenario where maybe, you know, to alleviate some of the privacy concerns, um, what we're really looking at is a system where more or less these things are primarily communicating with each other. And then at a certain point, if something uh, within the collective data across all these, this whole spectrum is identified, then that's when the, the real trigger gets placed. And, and so I think for me, like, you know, what I've really gotten out of this is this idea that this is now what we've done is we've unbundled, you know, this centralized device into little tiny bits and atoms and they're going to continue to become smaller and smaller and smaller and they operate sort of like the ant farm right they all sort of have this hive mind that they communicate with each other across and more times than not this is happening in the background but every now and then when whatever you've designed these things to do and i you know look for 
that's when you're then being alerted to that. That's when you're kind of then involved in the situation. But more times than not, it's more like these things are just sort of detecting, detecting, communicating with each other and seeing as a group what's being found in the data. I am eagerly looking forward to it. And we are every day about uh, 80 people here at Pilate trying to make this hive mind happen. <laughs> I love that word, by the way. I just wrote it up. <laughs> um, I, I think that that uh, that we're just a very very small part of it, and maybe with the same that happened with the two wireless headphones, we can we can create something, and maybe many others can pick it up and make it even better. Yeah, absolutely, Andy. Any closing thoughts? I'm really looking forward to seeing you realizing the vision, even in the short term. The idea of moving. Uh, really the, the kind of the app store into the ear and on the body so that I can have a general purpose device like my phone that I can run under any circumstance is really appealing. And then, of course, going forward, the idea of having the more embedded sensors, the hive mind, if you will, it's really easy to imagine how that's going to be so integrated into our daily life. So yeah, I love both the short and the long-term vision. And yeah. of course, you've had that since the beginning I've known you. And it's really fascinating to watch how you've developed the company and how you keep leading the way, uh, pointing the way for others who then, you know, will more fully develop the market, but you're always in front, you know, always leading there. And that's really fascinating. So I, I take one pride in, in what we've done is if you make something, it's, it, it's really fast that someone in China copies it. Like if you're seeing the AirPods, uh, the AirPods Pros, they were almost coming out as copies at the same time that Apple bought them out. Now, the only product that I've never seen copied is the Dash headphones. I've never seen anyone copy it, mainly because it's crazy. <laughs> it was a crazy, crazy thing. And uh, I salute the engineers that were part of making that thing. It was uh, very much a pioneering effort. Well, but as the, and as the creator of this potential ecosystem, uh, you have the chance to become the de facto standard. It's you know not so different than say Android, for example. Anybody can quote unquote copy an operating system, but if Bragi OS achieves wide enough adoption, you're not going to be worried about copying so much as helping to create the broad infrastructure of different companies using it for different purposes. Exactly, and uh, we're trying our best, and um, and this year you'll see uh, a range of products coming out with Pari software, and we are very excited to see um, how that's going to be be accepted. Um, we where, while our first product was very much a, a trial platform, a, an exploration platform, this has to be more consumer ready and. Um, for wider population and, and we're trying our best to get there. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I, I know that we went on, you know, a little bit long today, but I thought that was probably one of the most fascinating, I don't know, 70 minutes that I've ever had in my life. So thank you so much, Nikolai, for coming on today, sharing this whole journey. I think that, uh, you know, there's a misconception that Braggy, when you guys did pivot away from, um, you know, hardware and then now into software, uh, that, that you guys were no longer doing anything. And I think that you've really helped to um, 
you know, clear things up and make us well aware of what exactly it is that the role that Bracky is going to be playing here and how important this type of technology really is going to be, especially in light of today's circumstances. So I can't thank you enough for coming on. Andy, thank you for coming on as well. I know that you two go a ways back and to have your input was, uh, was really cool too here. So thank you both very much for joining in today. Thank you for everybody who tuned in here to the end and we will chat with you next time. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Future Ear Radio. For more content like this, just head over to futureear.co where you can read all the articles that I've been writing these past few years on the worlds of voice technology and hearables and how the two are beginning to intersect. Thanks for tuning in and I'll chat with you next time.